If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 500. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you the free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. Purchase a class there. I'm going to be talking about some of that stuff today. We're going back in time a little bit, but go ahead and do that. Also, click on that support tab while you're at brianmclanahan.com. Throw a few pennies my way. Help keep the lights on. Help keep the podcasts going. Get a book plate. You can get my autograph on one of my many books. So if you want to get those and you want my autograph on them, go ahead and purchase that book plate. And I'll send it to you in the mail. Also, go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, a great way to support the show. And click on that shop tab at BrianMcClanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. It's a great way to advertise the show. And as always, share the show around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. And this is a very special episode because it is episode number 500. So when I started doing this... I didn't know how long it would take to get to 500 episodes, but here we are, 500 episodes in. Hopefully, there's another 5,000 more, <laughs> but uh, 500 episodes in, I, I really appreciate everyone that's been on board for this. If you haven't listened to some of the earlier stuff, go back and do it. Go back and pick up those early shows. Go back and listen to some of the things I've said. I, look, I think I've been consistent throughout the many years I've done this. And today we're going back in time a little bit, going back to what first got me on the radar, so to speak, with people wanting to listen to what I had to say about things. And that is my 2009 book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers. And I say I'm going back to that because the topic of the day is going to deal with the founding generation. But if you look at McLean Academy, I've got a class on the founding fathers. I've got a class on the Constitution, American Constitutions, not just the U.S. Constitution, but also the Articles of Confederation, State Constitutions, the Confederate Constitution. It's all in there because that's all part of the American constitutional tradition. Amendments to the U.S. Constitution is a great class. And I've also got the Originalist Papers, which is four classes, 101 documents in favor of ratification of the Constitution. I take you through this, and I'm going to rely on that, and I'm going to mention that because we're going to talk about that in this particular podcast with some of the arguments made. So we're going to talk about the founding generation today, and it's a piece that a, a fairly popular, up, up-and-coming uh, establishment historian has written. Her name is Lindsay Travinsky. She's written a book on the Washington cabinet, which nobody had ever done before. And it's an interesting history. I think that people have pointed out that, you know, she said that presidents have followed this cabinet uh, design since Washington until they got to Trump. Trump just blew it all up. Well, that's not true. 
uh, we know it's not true at all. I mean, you could go back to what about what about uh, Andrew Jackson? Did he follow Washington's design of the cabinet? No, he kept firing people, and he had his kitchen cabinet. I mean, this was something that historians have talked about forever. What about John Tyler? Did John Tyler listen to his cabinet? At least not the first one. We know he didn't. So the idea of an advisory council as a cabinet, which is something George Washington essentially created, and there was an argument to be made. Uh, and I talk about this. She actually brought this up in an article she wrote, an academic article, using uh, Marcus, which is James Iredell. Uh, Marcus, um, or Iredell, however you want. But Marcus is, uh, is important. Uh, the Marcus essays are important because it does get into the idea of the cabinet and what the cabinet was supposed to be. Uh, and, and the president, George Mason, was famously uh, hostile to the executive branch because it didn't have an advisory council. So essentially what we get out of the cabinet is a creation of that. Now, there was some speculation you would get this. I mean, I think that's the case if if it's being discussed openly in favor of ratification of the Constitution, which the Marcus essays were in that, and I cover a number of the Marcus essays in the Originalist Papers. You need to get into that. Uh, Mark, uh, Iredell will certainly, I mean, he talked about it. He said, look, um, what you're arguing against here is irrelevant, not necessary. Uh, and so there's going to be, I mean, we don't need that. But regardless... I want to get into this essay because she says something that I find hilarious. Now, some of this I will agree with. I'll say that. I'm going to, I'll say some of, these positions, some of the points she makes I agree with, but I think she's operating from a position of emotivism. Uh, the last part of the essay certainly shows that. And I question sometimes whether these people are, who use this argument that she makes, and I'm just going to say the, the argument is that, well, we can't listen to the founders. They were 18th century men with 18th century positions. And so if somebody, what would the founders think about that? I don't know. She says, would they look at the metal tube in the sky? What's that? I couldn't have worn pants and I couldn't have done these things. These are the same people though, because in the same essay, she brings up things like slavery. So we have to condemn them from a 21st century position because they were pro-slavery, many of them. At the same time, and we have to, so... We, we have to, uh, we, we can't necessarily like them because of that. But except for the good ones who were, you know, we, we, we voiced these positions on them. They, I mean, uh, the, these things are bad. And so we can't like them at all because of, you know, whatever it is. Or we have to just accept them for that. Well, they didn't really know what to do with slavery. They, they would just wrestle with this, so we have to accept it. But they were bad because they didn't let us wear pants. Whatever. It's the inconsistency at times that's the problem with the arguments the left often makes with the founders. And in some cases, the right. They do this too. So she begins the piece, In the last few months, an increasing number of politicians have made arguments to start with the founders never intended. While Americans have been appealing to the founding generation to bolster their position since the founding generation, there seems to be an uptick of this rhetoric and political dialogue. I've spent over a decade, oh my gosh, deeply immersed in the founding generation. And let me tell you, almost any argument that starts with those dreaded words is usually made in bad faith. Well, my gosh, over a decade. Let me tell you, I mean, that's just a long time. So she's young, right? But anytime you have someone, 
I've spent over a decade doing this. I've spent five years looking. I've spent 20 years looking at this. They feel insecure about what they're going to say. They have to prove it. They're bona fide as I've spent a decade looking at this. And so you got to believe me. Let me tell you. You've got to believe me. I know what I'm talking about. When in reality, in some cases, she doesn't really know what she's talking about. And I'll, and I'll bring that up in a minute. She does make some points that I do agree with, though. There are two instances in which it's acceptable, acceptable and appropriate to consider the founder's intentions. First, you can ask what the founder's intended if you're exploring how those expectations immediately met with resistance and evolved once they took office. This is her position with the cabinet, say, right? So it's okay to talk about the founders in their time because we don't know what they would have thought if they're in our time. I think you can make the case we do know what they would have thought because they were basing their time on historical antecedents. They said as much. They said as much. They use history all the time to bolster or to refute their own positions. They did it over and over again. If you go back and look at the ratification debates, they use the same examples over and over again when it comes to types of government, whether it's the Swiss Confederation, the German Confederations, the Greek Confederations. They do it all the time. They're always looking back at history. Their own experience as British subjects are looking at all of these things. They are basing their understanding of where they are based on history, this exact same thing we're doing, and we look at these things. Now, what Chervinsky would say is, yeah, they said this, but they rejected all of that. They said, we're not like that because the circumstances were different. Okay. I mean, you can say certainly some circumstances are different, but what they said in all of that was that these confederations didn't meet our own and our own challenges because we had different challenges now. But then they wrote, had a written constitution, and a written constitution, as they said, was to essentially restrain the government. So if you want to change it, you better do it through the amendment process. She brings that up, but it's not what we do now. Second, you can ask what the founders intended to understand what people were thinking at that time. Any attempt to apply 18th century ideology or values to the 21st century is inherently problematic. Here's why. Now, I could also flip that. Any attempt to apply 21st century values to the 18th century is inherently problematic, too. This is why we should celebrate all of these guys or anyone else through history. I mean, they were good men, and we shouldn't apply 21st century logic to 18th century issues. We shouldn't do that either. See, but they won't agree with that. And it's very strange when she says wrestling with slavery and all these things. Well, a lot of them just didn't care. This is true. One, the founders almost never agreed on anything. While they certainly agreed that things like liberty and republican virtue were important, they rarely could come to a consensus about how to define those principles. They certainly didn't agree about what the federal government should look like, and that is one of her major mistakes. They did agree on what the federal government should look like, and let me explain how. And, well, I'll get into that after I get her arguments. And they didn't even agree how to remember the Constitutional Convention just a few short years after the ink dried. But the Constitutional Convention wasn't the important thing. It was the ratifying conventions. And that's where everybody misses stuff. Now, I know she's read Pauline Meyer because she brings it up at times in some of her papers, or at least she's glanced over it. I don't know if she's actually read it. And Pauline Meyer's book is highly problematic as well because she doesn't understand, now the late Pauline Meyer, she didn't understand 
the most important part of the ratification process was promising that the central authority would not go beyond the delegated powers enumerated in the document. That was the most important argument every single proponent of the Constitution made. It's why we got the Bill of Rights to begin with. You see, there was a consensus. The opponents of the document said, guess what? This document, this government, is going to abuse power. It's going to run roughshod over all of these civil liberties, which we hold dear. It's going to do things that are not in the document itself. It's going to abuse its authority. The proponents of the document said, no, it's not. It won't do that. You know why? Because we only have the delegated powers, and they're clearly defined and enumerated, and we can't wiggle around that. There were some arguments made for implied powers here and there, but generally it was we can't wiggle around these powers. They're, I mean, they're pretty strict. And so your argument is faulty. But to get those people who are against it to believe in the Constitution, they concluded an amendment essentially codifying what they promised. And if you look at the proposed amendments coming out of the state, what was generally number one on those lists? Well, what became the Tenth Amendment? So there was a consensus. The federal government had clearly defined, as even Hamilton said, expressly defined or delegated powers. It had those. Those listed in the document. The states could do everything else not listed there, and they were even concurrent in those powers. Now, as far as size of the general government, the arguments made, well, the founders could never, I mean, they they wouldn't. They, they, you couldn't make this argument they wouldn't have agreed with a government our size today. She makes that argument at the end. We know that's not true as well. Because of the arguments made in favor of ratification, which included promises that there would be economy, that the government would actually create a more efficient, the central authority would actually make it less expensive to have government because you wouldn't have redundancy. That was Hamilton's argument. You wouldn't have redundancy. He made this argument quite clear several times. Others said the same thing. There would be no redundancy. So we know they wouldn't have supported this big monstrosity. Hamilton had one person working for him in a small little office with a desk. That's it. Hamilton believed in economy. They all did, and they mentioned it. They believed in economy of expenditures. And the only time taxes would be raised, direct taxes if we're at war. Otherwise, we don't need it. Hamilton also said this. I mean, look, I'm just using Hamilton because he's the big government guy that everyone points to. Well, I mean, Hamilton's big government guy. The big government guy wouldn't recognize this trillion-dollar monstrosity we have in Washington, D.C. today. They wouldn't recognize it. And they certainly would look at the powers that it has and say, well, we didn't say it could do that. In fact, here we actually said it couldn't do that. So then she says, a few examples for clarification. If the framers, the men that wrote the Constitution, had agreed on everything, they would have all signed the document. They didn't. Well, yes, there were three that didn't. Elbridge Gary, George Mason, and John Randolph. The three that didn't. So three in Philadelphia refused to sign it. This is true. And then uh, Randolph and Mason published objections to the document. 
And those objections, Mason's objections in particular, became a hotly contested item for the proponents of the document. They refuted it. They, they played off of it, right? So, well, this isn't true, this isn't true, this isn't true. But you know what they did agree on? The basic structure of the federal government, that it would be a federal or confederal union, as under the Articles of Confederation, with limited and enumerated powers that were delegated in the document. This is what they agreed on because that's how they sold it. George Mason refused to sign the Constitution and published a pamphlet after the convention arguing that the states should refuse to ratify the proposed document. George Washington took Mason's objections so personally that their disagreement drove a significant wedge between the longtime friends. In November 1787, as Mason continued his rabble-rousing against, it's just rabble-rousing against the Constitution, rabble-rousing. Look at the language she uses here. This is bad. It's rabble-rousing against the Constitution. Well, maybe Mason had a point. It's not really rabble-rousing. It's saying, hey, this thing's going to be pretty disastrous if we ratify it because it's going to do X, Y, and Z. Now, the interesting thing about that, they've all been proven correct, right? They've all been proven correct looking at the current monstrosity in Washington. That We, we know that. And in fact, Joseph Story... Joseph Story, in his commentaries on the Constitution, used these objections to essentially buttress his positions that this is what the Constitution was supposed to do. He flips ratification on its head. Washington complained about him in a letter to David Stewart. If the convention was such a tumultuous and disorderly body as a certain gentleman has represented it to be, it may be ascribed in a great degree to some dissatisfied characters who would not submit to the decisions of a majority thereof. Well, there was some disagreement in Philadelphia about some things, and there were, there were issues voted down. For example, a federal negative of state law, as John Rutledge said, that alone ought to damn the document, and of course it was rejected. But what we got out of Philadelphia was a general consensus as to what the general government should be. Then she says, additionally, the very existence of the Federalist Papers demonstrates that the founding generation had serious disagreements about the Constitution and the proposed government. Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison wrote the Federalist Essays to convince people to support the Constitution and the ratification conventions. If the outcome of the vote wasn't as certain, there would have been no need for the excellent propaganda that of the Federalist Papers. I agree with her there. Yes, people were not sold that the Constitution would be a better frame of government, a better central authority than what they had under the Articles. It was certainly close in many states. In New York, it was only by three votes in favor of ratification. Virginia was also close... Pennsylvania, even though the vote was much larger, was still fairly close because the proponents rigged the convention and, by the way, had riots in favor of it, forcibly pulled people back in their seats. I was going to talk about that with Texas, and I haven't followed up and see what's happening in Texas there with people getting arrested, the legislators, if that's actually happening. But you had certainly disagreement over the Constitution and what it meant for the future. Was it going to be a good government or a bad government? But they all agreed on general structure. She said they didn't agree on what the federal government would be. Yes, they did. They agreed it would be a federal government, a federal republic. They agreed on that. The House would be the national part of it, and the Senate would preserve the federal nature of the Constitution. And the Senate would control the entire government. I mean, it would have all the power. It controlled, it, it basically had a check on the national part of the House. It had a check on the executive. It had a check on the judicial branch. It had a check on everything. 
right? The Senate was the key because it was the federal part of the union. And the general consensus was that the powers delegated to the Constitution or delegated to the general government through the Constitution, I should say, would be the only powers that the general government had. And this was said over and over again. As early as October of 1787, you got James Wilson of Pennsylvania standing out in the State House yard speech and saying, you know what? The only powers of central authority you're going to have are the ones that are in the document. Everything else is reserved to the states. And the states can do whatever they want. The federal government can't. It cannot go beyond these powers. That is the nature of this written constitution. It is there to contain the powers of the central authority, not be an indefinite grant of power. And that was the core argument of the proponents of the document. And it was persuasive enough with the addition of a Bill of Rights to protect the powers of the states and the people and to prevent federal encroachment, as the preamble to the Bill of Rights says, to prevent misconstruction. Misconstruction means we're going to hold your feet to the fire. We're going to hold you to what you said in the ratifying conventions. That's what misconstruction means. So this was the general consensus. We had a federal government of limited and enumerated powers. That's it. That's originalism. And anything that deviates from that, anything that goes beyond that, is not correct. Now, our argument would be these are 18th century men, an 18th century position. They, we can't listen to them. Certainly we can. Because they wrote the darn thing. So if we're going to still have it, now, of course, they did say, and I'll, let me get to that in a minute. I'm not going to steal my thunder. She said, if the founders did agree on one thing, it was that they were flawed humans and their creations were imperfect. Okay, I mean, they were Christians, so this was part of, generally Christians, I know not all of them were, but this was a generally Christian belief that they were flawed, that no man-made creation is perfect. Even they said so. The Constitution wasn't perfect, but it's the best they could get. And because of federalism, it allowed for flexibility. The states could be the states, and the central authority wouldn't abuse them. That was the whole argument. They desperately... The term desperately is an emotive term. When I read the founding generation, I don't read desperation in their statements about future generations to come up with the creative solutions to problems they couldn't solve and problems they couldn't foresee. I don't, I don't see that. Desperation? I do see desper- desperation in Randolph in Virginia saying, we need, to, we need to ratify this thing or we're going to lose the Union. There was desperation there. He was more concerned about the Union than anything else. We don't ratify. We're done. Desperation. So that's, that's, that term is a little bit emotive, and I think that's a bad term. I would, if I was editing this... If she was one of my students, I would have struck that term because it's not true. Thomas Jefferson went so far as to suggest that each generation, about every 19 years, could come up with their own constitution to meet the current moment. No society can make a perpetual constitution or even a perpetual law. The earth belongs always to the living generation. Now, that quote is actually taken out of context. If you look at what that letter is, the letter is written from Paris in 1789, as Jefferson was there, And he's writing about the French civilization and the French problem, the revolution. 
and he's complaining about the nobles owning, I mean, blocking out large segments of the French population because of the land. And he's talking about this extensively in the essay, in this letter to Madison. It's a letter to Madison, an essay, essentially, on his positions on society and government. But this is the same Jefferson that was deeply committed to federalism and deeply committed to that principle of government and original intent in the Constitution. He was committed to it. As Kevin Goodsman has rightly pointed out in his great biography, political biography of Jefferson, Jefferson was a reformer. He certainly was. But only in Virginia. It didn't go further than that. Even his letter to the Danbury Baptist, when he says, one day I hope that you're going to get good freedom of religion, he didn't say the general government was going to do it, that the people of Connecticut had to do it. The framers included an amendment process for this very purpose and used it immediately. Used it immediately. Well, within two years. But, um, yes, that was what the amendment process was for. And it was actually pointed out, this is what we're going to do. Look, if you want to change it in the future, you can amend the Constitution. Now, opponents of the document complained it was too hard to do, which makes you question how much they wanted to change it. It is hard to amend. The Constitution is very hard to amend, which is why the Confederate Constitution of 1861 made it easier to do. I mean, they, they thought that was a problem. It's very hard to amend, which makes the Constitution more permanent than what she's suggesting, because they didn't want willy-nilly amendments added to it. Friendly reminder that the Bill of Rights was not included in the original Constitution. Yeah, okay. That's true. The Bill of Rights only came into existence because the Anti-Federalists protested vociferously during the ratification process and extracted promises from Federalists that they would include amendments once they were in office. What did they protest against? They protested against a potential for absolute power and abuse of power. That's what they protested against. And they were promised over and over again that was, in fact, the argument against a Bill of Rights was that by adding a Bill of Rights, you're going to abuse original intent because we're telling you, if the government, if the Constitution doesn't say you can do it like we can't prohibit trial by jury in the states, we can't do it. So if you add this, you're essentially codifying implied powers because you're saying, well, these powers were there, but we're going to make sure they aren't there. That's a pretty strong argument. I think one that people often miss. They often miss that argument for what the Constitution really is, because this is what the people who sold it to the state said it was. A limited federal republic. Francis Corbin in Virginia, at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, which I talk about in Originalist Papers Part 4, actually refuted Madison. Um, he used that term, essentially, federal republic, and he said, you know, Madison's idea of this dual sovereignty, this kind of dual government, he said, no, nah, it doesn't really work. This is what it really is. And I think that was something that, okay. But that's how it was sold. James Madison made good on that promise and drafted several proposed amendments in the summer of 1789, two full years after the Constitutional Convention. But she said it was immediate. But anyways, in the same paragraph, it's not immediate, but it was immediate. And, and um, you know, well, I mean, you can give her leeway here because that's when the general government met. 
And Madison only drafted those amendments after he received proposals from all the states. He didn't do it single-handedly. I mean, again, that's, that's a little bit too simplistic. But, of course, this is an essay for, uh, for her email list on Substack that was shared on social media. So, um, look, I can quibble with some of the history here. She is correct that the Bill of Rights was added later and that there was a promise of amendments. But, again, this gets a little dicey. Then she says, what does that mean? First, they knew the Constitution didn't solve the problems they were currently facing, like slavery or the partisan or geographic divide. Well, <laughs> um, see, this is, again, 21st century, like slavery. Now, I know that it, it was discussed. Look, they discussed slavery in all the ratifying conventions at one point or another. It was brought up. It was brought up. In South Carolina, they said the Constitution wasn't pro-slavery enough. In North Carolina... You had some of the proponents saying that they, like Iredell, wishing that it wasn't there. But they thought this could be handled by the states. By the states, not the central authority. Slavery, to, to deal with slavery from the central authority was a non-starter. Was a non-starter. And they didn't even think about an amendment to do it. Nothing. This was going to be handled in the states. So she's foisting a 21st century position back on the 18th century, essentially more, more accurately, a 19th century position back on the 18th century. If you go and read all these ratification debates, even if you go to Massachusetts, here was the argument in Massachusetts. We don't want to be in a union with a bunch of slaveholders. Opponents of the document. Proponents of the document. Yeah, we understand that, but you know what? We don't have to have slavery here. It doesn't, I mean, we can do what we want with it. If they want to keep slavery down there, they can keep slavery in South Carolina. We don't, it doesn't affect us. We don't affect them. What is that called? Federalism. That's how the Constitution sold to the states. And no one was talking about abolishing slavery through the federal government in 1789. In fact, if you had even talked about that, the Constitution wouldn't have been ratified. That's why we had the compromises we had. So this is her putting, like, slavery. That's the 21st back on the 18th. She said you can't put 18th on the 21st, but here she's putting 21st back on the 18th. So be consistent. Be consistent. Or the partisan or geographic divide. The partisan or... Now, I, I, I'm not exactly sure what she means by that. If you're talking about, say, tariffs, those were discussed. In fact, George Mason was ticked that there weren't any prohibitions on tariffs, protective tariffs, what he called navigation laws. And this was something that was thought to be a compromise. Taxes, the free three-fifths compromise. This is part of it. Taxes, 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 taxes. What kind of taxes could they have? How much power would the general government have? The South wanted more representation because they thought they would be taxed to death that's why you get the three-fifths compromise. So I'm not, I mean, again, I don't know what she means by that 100%. But yes, I mean, there were some other problems there. But you know what really solved those problems? Federalism. A federal republic of limited central authority. This is how the Constitution was sold. So they all agreed on that. That's what they agreed on. She's looking at this in a way that's inconsistent with how the founding generation thought about this. At ratification. And then even after. Second, they knew the society would continue to evolve beyond their wildest imaginations. 
They could not create a system that addressed all of the potential eventualities that might come down the road, which is why so much of the language of the Constitution is a bit vague. They never said anything about that. I mean, the vagueness of the document, the the vague part, what people say, those are vague powers. Well, not necessarily if you look at how they were selling this thing to the states. They didn't say there was really any vague powers. The opponents did. Well, this, this phrase can be used to do this. And what did the proponents do? No, you can't do that. The necessary and proper clause, for example. George Nicholas in Virginia famously points out in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, you know, we could have added that to the end of any power. It shall be ne- the Congress shall have necess- it'll be necessary and proper, or the Congress shall have the necessary and proper powers to do this. Blah. There you go. You could have added it. But you know what? They didn't. They put it at the end of Article 1, Section 8 to say, all these things we listed here, you're going to have the necessary, you're going to have everything necessary and proper to do these things, to execute the foregoing powers. That's it. You could have added that. And so it's not an expansion of power, it's not vague. If it doesn't say you can create a bank, you can't create a bank. In fact, that was discussed in Philadelphia, and it was rejected. Madison and Hamilton had a long walk in August of 1787 about this. And they decided they weren't going to add that to the document because you know what would have done? It would have defeated the document. They'll deal with it later. This is why Hamilton was a little perplexed when Madison said, you know what, there's no power to charter a bank, the Constitution. The the power to, to build roads and canals and all of that was proposed by Pennsylvania, rejected explicitly. No power to grant to build a bank was even granted, but this was scheming. Hamilton and, and, and Madison were scheming out of doors, out of away from the convention, and so then you get Hamilton proposing the bank, and Madison said, "You can't do it. It's not in the Constitution. We agreed. We, we weren't going to put it there, so you can't do it." Yeah, because it's not in the document. <laughs> I mean, this is agreed. Right? So they agreed on these things. Now, Hamilton would go back on his promises. This is the major problem with Hamilton. They could not create a system that addressed all the potential eventualities, I said. Um, if anything, they would be horrified to know that we've deified their creation and treated the Constitution as sacrosanct. I don't know about that. These were men who were willing to go to war in 1775 and 1776 to protect the ancient rights of Englishmen. The Magna Carta, which they talked about. The Great Charter. They mentioned it. The English Bill of Rights. The systems of government they had become accustomed to. As Jack Green points out, this system of British constitutionalism that was so important to them, which is what they were willing to fight for. So I don't know if they would worry about that. I mean, they did say things, you know, about, well, they, sh- you know, the founding generation, what is all this deification stuff? Yeah, they, that was that was more Lincoln than anything else uh, from that point forward. But this founding fathers of the capital F, there certainly would have been some opposition to that. I agree with her there. But um, they certainly liked the ancient constitutions. They talked about these things, the ancient constitutions, which they did deify. That's why we had the American War for Independence. The best way we can live and honor, honor and live up to the legacy of the founding generation is not to treat them as all-knowing, but to constantly strive to improve the system they created. Well, okay. Um, how are you going to do that? Are you going to do it with amendments, or are you just going to do it through 
illegal and unconstitutional acts. Because that's essentially what the left has resorted to. I like, though, that she uses the term founding generation and not founding fathers. I think that's great. I will say that. I think it's great that she's not using founding fathers. Now, I use it in that class because it's what people recognize. But I've always preferred the founding generation. And as I wrote in my founding fathers guide, I'm sorry, Pig to the Founding Fathers, this is the greatest generation in American history, bar none. There's none better. They wrote a host of state constitutions, two constitutions for the United States. These are, these are great men. And um, they were prescient. They were also well aware of what they could do. It could apply to anything. And this is where she gets into something else where I disagree. Finally, we can't return to the 18th century. I'm often asked what the founders would think of the current moment if they could time travel. I usually start by making a joke about what they say, like, why is there a metal tube in the sky? Which is snarky, but actually more substantive than it seems. We live in a wildly different world. I've said this online before, but I wouldn't have been allowed to wear pants in the 1790s, nor would I have been able to vote or open a credit card, own property in my name, get a PhD, and on and on and on. 700,000 people lived bound in slavery. Animals were considered beasts with no legal protections, and Native Americans were noble savages to be civilized. So there's her lefty coming out in her. Right? This is an emotional argument for her. In many ways, this is emotional. And I know she's trying to say this is logical through this, but she's, she's in, I think, uh, showing an F personality type here, which is feeling personality type, certainly with this. Um, and logically, throughout a lot of this, I mean, she's making an argument based on her logical understanding of, which at times I think is incorrect, understanding of the ratification of the Constitution and what that meant. But um, here she deviates into that, and I think that's the emotivism, using the word desperately and these type of things. You need to avoid that stuff because it's just not accurate. Yeah, certainly these men would not have allowed wanted her to wear pants or allowed her to vote. I mean, that's true. So the world is different. But that doesn't mean the fundamental principles of government are different. These are two different arguments. And what the opening point was that the founders never intended, and it was by a Republican politician talking about the size and scope of government. So that point is valid. You can say that, yeah, we live in a different world. Certainly, the 18th century is not the 21st at all. It's no, nowhere near the 21st. But we do live in a different world. The founding generation was primarily concerned with Spanish, British, and French encroachment on Western and Southern territories, fear of violent enslaved uprisings. Um, let me just stop there. When are we talking about after... The Haitian Rebellion, okay, they, there was some concern about that, certainly. Um, they were concerned about the French Revolution appearing on American soil more than anything else. They were concerned about that. I mean, that's John Marshall saying that he wants to arrest all these Republican terrorists. Called them terrorists. But then she, she again, it's a, it's a, it's a she uh, contradicts herself, the next part of this paragraph. And naval impressment on the high seas. Cybersecurity... Competition with China, which is no different than competition with Spanish, British, and French encroachment. I mean, this is exactly what we're talking about. And global warming didn't even begin to enter the equation. Yeah, because the, the founding generation were intelligent about some things. And global warming, I don't know if they would have bought that because they shouldn't. Anyways, that's her politics filtering into this. 
These are just a few examples that demonstrate that many of the issues of the 21st century cannot be mapped neatly onto the 18th century expectations. Uh, no. She said, that's okay as it should be. As humans and society continues to evolve, so do our challenges. Although the framers were brilliant men, expecting them to have all the answers for our problems is wildly unfair. It's up for us to figure it out. But see, this is the point. By saying the founders never would have intended to have the government this big is not saying that they have the answers to all these things. It's saying we've got a central authority, a written constitution designed to restrain power of the central government, and therefore we should follow that. If we're not going to follow it, fine. Amend it. Amend it, as you say. Amend it. Change it. But we haven't done that. So we've just done it illegally over all these years. That's the real problem here. If we had a unitary state by design with unlimited powers, then you couldn't even make an argument against this stuff. But you can because we know we don't have that by design. That's the problem. That's the problem. So, look, I think that um, Dr. Uh, Travinsky is, um, says some right things here, but I think that she says some wrong things, and I think her politics color that a little bit. And her, her position, I don't know if she really understands ratification very well. Uh, and, I mean, a lot of times people with PhDs are very thin-skinned and they don't like to hear they don't understand something very well, particularly when she says, I've spent 10 years immersed in the founding generation. And let me tell you. So me challenging her, which I've spent more than 10 years... Uh, and she's going to have, she would have, you know, establishment academics back her up. She's going to have that. So she'd probably bristle at this a little bit. But uh, the point is, I've spent more than 10 years looking at the founding generation. More than that. And uh, I can tell you, I can tell you, particularly uh, in looking at ratification, they did have consensus on one very important thing, and that is that the general government would only have the powers expressly, and that term was used, delegated to it via the Constitution. Anything else was unconstitutional. And I would ask Dr. Javinsky, where is it in the power of the general government to, we'll just go with global warming, to pass carbon taxes, and you could say, oh, it's a tax or carbon credits, I should say, or to spend money on windmills, where is that in the Constitution? And we know if you just go back and look at the Philadelphia Convention, the idea of, of building federally funded internal improvements was rejected. And, by the way, it was rejected by the majority of Americans for most of the 19th century. So that's another issue, right? So I, I say that because I think that you have to be very careful with what she's saying here. Um, and again, a deeper understanding of what originalism means would help her out. All right. 500th episode of the Brian McClanahan Show in the can. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope, for, hope you've listened to all 500. If you haven't, go back and listen to the old ones. Uh, this was certainly in line with a lot of the stuff I've done before. And I'll see you next time with the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>